1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now as those who are weak, as those who spiritually do not have the ability in and of ourselves to grasp the breadth and height and width and length of your love for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would come, that you would send your Spirit to empower us to understand your word and to, to love it, to embrace you through it, that we might be drawn into a closer relationship with you and with each other as a result. Father, we declare that we are not worthy of coming in and of ourselves. We are unworthy and we have no right in and of ourselves, but we come confidently and we come boldly knowing that we will hear from you because Jesus has earned the right for us to come. So we now come with joy and gladness into your presence, asking that you would speak your love and your glory over us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the many privileges of being a pastor is that you typically have a pretty good pulse on the kinds of questions that Christians are asking. And the reason for that is because as a pastor, Christians are usually sharing those questions with you because they're interested to know how the Bible answers them. And you see, one of the questions that I'm most frequently asked is the question as to what should motivate us to live righteously as Christians. And I've got to tell you, I love it when I'm asked that question because the Bible doesn't just give us one answer. It doesn't just give us one motive for righteous living. Instead, it gives us multiple motives 
for righteous living. And you see, the reason why I love that is because no matter where we are in our Christian life, and no matter what the state of our heart is, we can always know that somewhere in his word, God has spoken in such a way that by his spirit, he will motivate us to grow more and more like him. And so as we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to see is that John is doing just that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving us motivation to live righteously. And so as we look at how John does that, I want you to notice how he ties together our motives for righteousness with three historically significant appearings. Because by tying these two things together, what John is showing us is that these three historical appearings are what should motivate us to righteous living. And you see, the way John does that is by using a variation of the Greek word for appearing six times in this passage. And according to the Bible scholar John Stott, even though they're different variations of the word, they're still communicating to us the same idea. And so that's why in our English translations, you'll see that these Greek words are translated as appears, or appeared, or coming. And so if you look at our text this morning, you can see that John uses that term twice in regards to Christ's first appearing in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. He uses it twice in regards to the Christian's eschatological or end times appearing in verse 2 of chapter 3, and he uses it twice in regards to Christ's first appearing in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 3. And so you see, what John is telling us by using this term six times is that these appearings are what should motivate us to live righteously. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to explore how John motivates us to righteous living by telling us to live in light of these three redemptive appearings. Because what John is telling us is that we are to live righteously in light of Christ's second appearing, we are to live righteously in light of our eschatological appearing, and we are to live righteously in light of Christ's first appearing. So first, let's look at how we are to live righteously in light of Christ's second appearing. Look at chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 with me. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, it's important for us to realize that in verse 28, John is starting a new section in his letter. And so this new section begins where we started reading in chapter 2, verse 28, and it ends at chapter 4 and verse 6. And what we see John doing in this section is he's revisiting and expounding upon the three heart checks that we've already looked at. In other words, these heart checks are so important to John that he's teaching them to us all over again. And so this morning, what we'll be looking at specifically in this new section is that John is further developing that first heart check that he mentioned back in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And if you recall, that first heart check we called the vertical heart check because its purpose was to test whether or not we loved God 
by keeping his commandments. And so in our passage here this morning, what John is doing is he's revisiting that vertical heart check, and he's expanding on the idea of it. He's expanding on the idea of why we should live righteously as Christians. And we can see that theme pop up right away in verse 28. Because John says, And now, little children, abide in Christ. And why should they abide in Christ? John says, So that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his appearing. So you see, right out of the gate, John is exhorting his listeners to live righteously in light of Christ's return. And the reason he knows that that will motivate them is because at Christ's return, all of humanity will give an account for the deeds that they've done in the body. And you see, what John also knows is that on that day, Christians will want, to be, want God to be glorified by how they lived their lives. In other words, Christians will want to have confidence that Christ has been honored by how they've lived their lives on this earth. That's the desire of every Christian. And so by reminding them that Christ will indeed appear again, John is motivating them to live righteously. Because the reality is that when Jesus returns, every human being will respond in one of two ways. They will either draw near to Jesus in confidence, or they will shrink away from Jesus in shame. John says those are the only two options. Because you see, for believers, Christ's return is, is our blessed hope. And so we look forward to that day with confidence because for us, it's our wedding day. It's the day on which we will be united with Christ, our groom. And so just as the bride prepares herself for the coming of the groom, so too we prepare ourselves as Christ's bride for the day when we will be reunited with him. And so we prepare for that day. And we long for that day. But you see, for unbelievers... The thought of Christ's return is terrifying because on that day, they will be weighed in the scales of God's justice and they will be found wanting. And so sadly, for all eternity, they will be subject to the wrath of Almighty God for their sin and rebellion against him. But we have to be careful here because I don't want you to misunderstand what John is saying. He's not saying that we will have confidence when Christ appears because we think our own righteousness can save us. He's not saying that at all. And we know that because the Bible is abundantly clear that the only confidence we can have that we will be saved is in the righteousness of Christ himself. But you see, here's the reality. If we are truly looking to Christ as our righteousness, then we will also be righteous ourselves. Not perfectly righteous, but truly righteous. And so, as a result, our lives will be characterized by communing with Jesus and loving his people and obeying his word. And so, here's the point. While our own righteousness can't be our confidence for salvation, it will be our confidence that Christ has indeed saved us because it's proof of that. It's evidence of that. And so, if we can see that in our lives, then what we will be able to do is we'll be able to confidently look forward to the return of Jesus as our blessed hope. And we will be able to confidently draw near to him 
on that day, while unbelievers will have to shrink away in shame. Now from there, John makes a slightly abrupt transition to verse 29, because without giving us much of a heads up, he switches from talking about Jesus to then talking about the Father. He says again in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now the reason we know that John has switched from talking about Jesus to the Father is because of the theological terms that he uses here. Because nowhere in the Bible is it ever said that we are born of Jesus. I mean, Scripture clearly says that we are born of the Spirit or that we're born of God, but not once does it teach that we are born of Jesus. And so what that tells us then is that John has switched from speaking about Jesus in verse 28 to then God the Father in verse 29. And what John is teaching us in this verse is that the Father's character should motivate us to living righteously. Because John says, listen, since we know that the Father is righteous, we can also know with absolute certainty that his children will also be righteous. Now again, not perfectly righteous, and not absolutely righteous like only God himself is, but still truly righteous. In other words, those who are born of God will be characterized by righteousness in their lives. And so John's point here is, how could it be any other way? Because if God is light, as he told us earlier back in chapter 1, then his children will also walk in the light. And you see, what John is making abundantly clear for us is that the believer's righteousness is evidence of his salvation and being born of God, but it's not the cause or condition of it. And you see, that's why the truth of Christ's second appearing motivates us to live righteously. It's because we know that our growth in righteousness is an essential part of who we are as God's children. It's a part of our birthright. And so that's why we can know with absolute certainty that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus because it can't be any other way. And so you see, that's why when John reminds us of Christ's second appearing, our hearts rejoice because on that day, our faith will be made sight and we will see Jesus. And you see, as Christians, we long for that. We long to behold the beauty of Christ appearing in all his glory. And what God has promised us is that we will indeed behold it. But you see, when we lose sight of that, as Christians, when we forget that we will behold the glory of Christ one day, we turn our eyes to the glory of lesser things. We turn our eyes upon the worthless trinkets of this world. And so as a result, we end up glorying in our shame. So Christians, let us not lose sight of Christ's second appearing. Because if we don't look to him as our blessed hope, then we're going to look somewhere else. And whatever that something else is, it won't lead us in the way of righteousness. Instead, it will lead us in the way of unrighteousness. So we've looked at how we're to live righteously 
in light of Christ's second appearing. Secondly, let's look at how we're to live righteously in light of our eschatological or end times appearing. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 with me again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, if you're paying attention to the outline, then what you'll notice is that our first and second points overlap here, don't they? And you see, the reason for that is because our eschatological appearing takes place at the exact same time as Christ's second appearing. In other words, these are simultaneous events. They happen at the exact same time. And so while I think we need to distinguish between these two, because the Apostle John does here, we also need to be aware that these two events are connected. So just keep that in mind as we continue to walk through this next section. Now, the first thing that John tells us about our eschatological appearing is that since it hasn't happened yet, the world doesn't recognize us for who we are. That's what he says at the end of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, our true identity has been veiled from the world even as Christ's true identity was veiled from the world while he was on this earth. And so John's logic here is if the world didn't know him, how could it possibly know us? Which is why he says, listen, don't expect the world to understand you or to know you because they can't. It's not possible. In other words, what John is talking about here is very similar to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So you see, the point that both John and Paul are making here is that it isn't until Jesus appears again that our identity as the sons of God will be revealed the world. And so the implication of that then is that we can expect life now to be one of humiliation and life later after Christ returns to be one of glorification. And this should make perfect sense to us because that's the pattern of Jesus's own life. I mean, just think about it. First, he emptied himself and then he was exalted. First, he went to the cross and then he received the crown. And so you see, that's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So you see, what Paul and John are saying here is the exact same thing. The Christian life is a pattern of suffering and death first, and then resurrection and life second. But you see, here's the question. Christian, do you really see your life that way? Do you 
uh, see your life as so intimately united to Christ's that you expect the pattern of your life to follow his? Of death and then resurrection? Of the cross and then the crown? Because you see, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really expect our lives to look that way, do we? But it gets even worse than that because I think what most of us are expecting is the exact opposite. We're not expecting humiliation first and glory second. We're expecting glory first and humiliation second. Because the sad reality is that most of us are expecting the glory of the American dream now. And then humiliation later when we lose it all to sickness or failure or death. In other words, I think that we're clinging so tightly to this life that we don't even contemplate what life will look like when Christ returns. And you see, as Christians, it shouldn't be that way. Our hope should be in the life to come, not in this life now. Because you see, the pattern of our life will follow our saviors if we're united to him. And so what we can expect then is humiliation in this life and then glory in the life to come. Because you see, the world doesn't know who we are right now, but it will when Christ returns. Because on that day, we will appear to them as we truly are. Now from there, John tells us something really fascinating. And what he tells us is that we ourselves don't even know what we will be like when Christ appears. That's why he says in the second half of verse 2, what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, what John is saying is, listen, God hasn't shown us exactly what we'll be like when Christ appears. And so it's a bit of a mystery to us. Now, John doesn't tell us that to alarm us. Quite the opposite. I think what he's telling us is that our appearing will be so glorious that we can't even wrap our minds around it yet because we're still fallen. And so we have to be perfected first before we can fully grasp what that is. But that doesn't mean that we can't know anything about our eschatological appearing because there are some things that we can know. And so that's why John goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 3, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So you see, what John says here is there's not much that we can know, but what we do know is glorious. Because what John is saying here is that when Jesus appears, we will be made like him. Not in the sense that we will be God as Jesus is God, but in the sense that our humanity will be perfected and glorified even as Jesus' humanity is perfected and glorified. In other words, we will be perfectly remade, body and soul, into the image of Jesus on that day. And do you know why that should be so exciting to us? Because what do we want more than anything else? We want to have as close a relationship with our triune God as we possibly can, right? And do you know how that becomes a reality? It becomes a reality when we live perfectly as God created us to. And you see, what John is telling us here is that when Jesus appears the second time, we will be made perfect. 
Simply by beholding his glory. And so as a result of that, we will commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect, glorious, unbroken fellowship for all eternity. So you see, this is what God has saved us to. He saved us to this kind of fellowship with himself. And what he promises is that it will be ours when Christ returns. And you see, that's, and so you see, that's why John then goes on to say in verse 3 that everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. So what John is telling us here is that this truth motivates us to righteousness by showing us that the way that we are purified is by beholding the glory of Jesus. Because remember, John just told us that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. And how does that happen? It happens by seeing him as he is. And so you see, what John is saying then is that seeing Jesus actually purifies us. And so the implication then is that we should be seeking to purify ourselves now by beholding the glory of Jesus. And the way we do that isn't by beholding him with our physical eyes. Instead, the way we behold Christ's glory now is through the eyes of faith as we see him in his word. Because from beginning to end, and on every single page, the scriptures point us to Jesus. So you see, this is how we purify ourselves now. By faith, we are to behold Christ's glory in his word. And as we do so, we will be motivated to strive for greater and greater purity in our lives. Knowing that one day, we will be pure, even as he is pure. And you see, the reason why John says that all of this is happening to us and will happen to us is because of verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Now, we often miss it, but this verse is breathtakingly beautiful. And I think at least part of the reason why we miss its beauty is because of our English translations. And I say that because every single commentary I read said essentially the exact same thing about this verse. And perhaps no one put it more beautifully or succinctly than John Stott when he said the expression what kind originally meant of what country. And so it's as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world that John wonders from what country may it come. The word always implies astonishment. So you see what John is saying here is that this love is so astonishing that it must be from another world. It must be from a place that we are unfamiliar with. Because where else could such love be found? Not on this earth. And you see what's astonishing is that this is the love that the Father has bestowed on us. And that should leave us absolutely speechless. Because the way the Father bestows that love is by making us His children. John says that's who we are now. We're no longer children of the devil. And we're no longer by nature children of wrath. Instead the father has lavished his otherworldly love upon us. And he has made us his children for Jesus' sake. 
And so because of that, we are God's children now. And you see, Christian, that changes everything for us. Because this is the central truth that motivates every aspect of our Christian lives, especially in regards to righteous living. Because we should be so astonished at God's love and so gripped at what it costs Jesus to secure our adoption that we live all the days of our lives in wonder and awe and praise over who God declares us to be as his children. Because even though the world doesn't know us, and even though we don't yet know ourselves what we will be like when Christ appears, it doesn't change the fact that we are God's children now. So we've seen how we are to live in light of Christ's second appearing, and we've seen how we are to live in light of our eschatological appearing. And so lastly, let's look at how we are to live righteously in light of Christ's first appearing. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 with me. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now in these verses, what John is doing is he's pointing us to the first appearance of Christ as another motive for why we should live righteously. And his main argument is that if we understand the reason why Jesus appeared the first time, then we would know that it's impossible for us as Christians to live a life that is characterized by sin. And so that's why John gives us two reasons why Christ first appeared. Two reasons why Christ first appeared. And the first reason he gives us is in verse 5. He says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So you see, the first reason that Christ appeared was to take away sins. And so as soon as we hear that, what should be echoing in our ears are the words of John the Baptist. Because in John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus came to do that. He came to take away sins. But how did he do that? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, then you know that the lamb that was used as a sin offering had to be what? It had to be perfect. It had to be spotless and without blemish. And you see, that's what Jesus was for us. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb, which is why John says in verse 5, in him there 
is no sin. In other words, Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a life that perfectly conformed to the law of God. And he did that in our place. And you see, since he lived that perfect life, Jesus was then able to be the sin offering that we owed God. Because for our sin and rebellion, we deserve to be punished for all eternity under God's wrath. But you see, what happened on the cross is that Jesus stood in our place as our substitute. And all our sins were imputed to him. And so in our place, what you have to realize is that God treated Jesus as if he had committed our sins. And you see, that's how Jesus took away our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserved in full. So that's the first reason why Jesus appeared. And the second reason that John says he appeared is in verse 8. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in order to understand what John is saying here, we have to understand what the works of the devil are. And if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, what we see very clearly is that the devil's main work is to separate man from God. Because that's what he's been doing from the very beginning. And the way he does that is by breaking God's law and by lying and by tempting others to break God's law as well. In other words, the devil delights to steal and kill and destroy. And so ever since Genesis chapter 3, there has been a cosmic battle between the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of God. But you see, what God had promised was that one day a redeemer would come who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the kingdom of the devil. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his first appearing. Because in his life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. And you see, because he's done that, he is now reconciling God to man and man to God. So you see, these are the two reasons why Jesus first appeared. He appeared to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And so what John is telling us then is that since this is why Jesus came, it is impossible for us to now live our lives as if we were still in our sins and still children of the devil. It's impossible for us to live that way because Jesus came to abolish all that. And so how can we possibly live any way but righteously? Well, John's answer is that we can't. At least not if we're truly united to Christ. And you see, that would be important to John's original hearers because the false teachers that they were dealing with were claiming that they could live unrighteously in sin and yet still be righteous in Christ. In other words, these false teachers were saying that their sin didn't really matter. And they were trying to get John's hearers to believe the same lie. And so that's why John fires back by saying, listen, our sin does matter. You can't just be okay and nonchalant about your sin. Because as he says in verse 4, sin is lawlessness. In other words, all sin is a rebellion against God's good, holy, and just law. And so as a result, it's a rebellion against God himself because he's the one who gave the law. And so that's why John says 
in verse 6, no one who abides in him, that is Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, what John is saying here is, listen, you can't say that you abide in Jesus and just embrace your sin. You can't say that you've seen him or known him and live a life that's just like the devil's. John says that's, that's not possible. And so he elaborates on that in verse 9 by saying, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So again, what John is saying here is that you can't be born of God and live a life that is characterized by deeds of the devil. It's impossible to live that way if you're a Christian. Because if you're truly born of God, then the Holy Spirit, his seed, is in you. And therefore, you will bear a resemblance to your heavenly Father. John says it can't work any other way. And so what we see then in John's letter is that he's fighting against two lies in regards to the Christian life. On the one hand, he's fighting against the lie that the Christian life is one of sinless perfection. And we see that in 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 10 when he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So on the one hand, he rejects the lie of of perfectionism, and yet on the other hand, he rejects the lie of Christian antinomianism. And that's the lie that we can live in sin all we want because we're declared righteous in Jesus. And the way John deals with that lie is by clearly showing us that we can't be united to Jesus and also be careless about our sin because Jesus came to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil And so if we're united to Jesus, then we can't be indifferent about our sin. Instead, we will hate our sin, and we will fight against our sin, and we will long for the day when we will be free from our sin. And in the meantime, we will slowly, joyfully, progressively, and painfully grow in grace and righteousness. And you see, that's why John can summarize this entire section in verse 10 by saying, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, what John is affirming here is what Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, where Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. In other words, what John and Jesus are telling us is that the moral trajectory of our lives will show us if we are children of God or if we are children of the devil. But I can imagine that for some of you, you're probably sitting there thinking to yourselves, how in the world is that supposed to motivate me to righteousness? I mean, if nothing, it it just scares me. Well, if that's you this morning, please hear me. That's not John's intention, ultimately. Because remember, he's not teaching sinless perfectionism here. He knows that we all sin. 
So the question isn't whether or not if you sin. The question is, do you hate your sin? Are you repenting of your sin and fighting against it daily? And do you long for the day when you will be completely free from your sin? And most importantly, do you find your life in Christ's righteousness and out of his righteousness live righteously yourself? Because you see, if that describes you, those are the marks of a child of God. But you see, instead, if you love your sin, and if you embrace your sin, and your life is characterized by sin, and there's been no change in your life since you confessed Christ, then repent. Because if that describes you, those are the marks of a child of the devil. So Christians, we should be encouraged because God has given us unspeakable riches in motivating us to live righteously. So then let us do so in light of Christ's first and second appearings and let us stand in astonishment all the days of our lives knowing that we are God's children now. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word because in it, it reveals to us that we have been made your sons. Father, we're thankful that you sent Jesus to appear the first time to take our sins away from us by dying for them on the cross and living the perfect life that we failed to, being the spotless lamb, sacrificing, laying down his own life for us. And Father, we're thankful that he has in that act also destroyed the works of the devil. And because of that, we have now been made your children. And we are your children even though the world doesn't know us as such. And even though we don't yet know how exactly we will appear when Christ returns again. But we are thankful for the truth that we will see him as he is and so we will be made like him. We will be perfected body and soul. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more sin. Praise you, Father. Thank you for that. And so we pray that um, we, would, we would live as those who make that good news known, that we would be desirous to bring others out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus' glorious light. Father, we pray that you would give us that desire, that we would share the gospel with folks in Bakersfield and that we would be diligent in making sure that others are sent to other parts of the world so that all of your children can be brought home. Father, what an unspeakable privilege it is for us to participate in this with you. And we pray that our motivation always would be Christ's first and second appearing and the fact that we are now your children. Empower us, we pray, that we might live righteously before your face now and all the days of our lives. We ask this in the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.